Okay, good morning, everyone. Sorry, I'm running a few minutes late here today. I had to take a nap. <laughs> yeah, power nap. <laughs> we are going to pick up again with our continuation of looking at the intermediate state, looking at the biblical, the way the Bible speaks would be a better way to put it, about what happens when you die. And so if you recall, we have spent a number of weeks in the Gospel of John looking maybe in the most deep, most profound sense of what the nature of life is. Life isn't a thing. Life is Christ. And so we possess life even now, insofar as we're baptized into Christ, have faith in Christ, are connected with the one who is life. And then, of course, where the last text we looked at in John's Gospel, where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you sent. So to know the Father and the Son is to possess eternal life. And that's really then, even as you die, you don't really die, Christ says. There's a paradox there. Though you die, yet shall you live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You tr simply transition from life to life, from Christ to Christ. Christ now, with faith, Christ then beheld. So there's, there's a movement on our part in, in terms of the nature of how we perceive life, but not a movement in terms of the definition of life itself. Now, with that in mind, then, we turned over to the Gospel of Luke. We'll just reread that one more time um, here in a moment. And this, of course, is the, the thief on the cross who, over the period of the crucifixion, is converted and ceases his reviling against the Lord and turns to him and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, of course, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And from this, we glean a foundation in fact, we're going to kind of see this idea repeated throughout a number of New Testament texts, but that the foundation of eternal life is simply to be with Jesus. All right. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, glancing one more time at Luke 23. And of course, we um, mentioned this, that in these two criminals, they both begin by reviling our Lord. Um, and by the way, um, you know, thieves is an okay reading. The thieves on the cross, the thief on the cross. But a better reading is insurrectionist. So, I, I mean, not only does the language itself bear this out, but the Roman government wasn't in the habit of taking Jesus, this massive insurrectionist, and crucifying him next to, you know, the ancient world's Bertie Madoff and, 
uh, uh, some some kind of pickpocket that that didn't rise to the level of let's make a human billboard out of you uh, by crucifying you in, in a way that all the pilgrims coming in and coming out could see. These are insurrectionists and um, rebels, and Jesus, of course, has been labeled an insurrectionist and a rebel. This is very important because at the root and essence of Adam's sin is precisely this, insurrection and rebellion. God hath said, and Adam did otherwise. It's full-on insurrection and rebellion, full-on claim to be greater than God. And so it is, it is this very offense that Jesus is labeled with, and he is put next to insurrectionists, um, rebels, who are in fact as such. So um, the word there is leste. And that, that very often, um, for example, I believe it is Barabbas who is described as a leste, as a murderer, and as an insurrectionist. And even in, in Barabbas, we talked about that, how Bar Abbas is son of the father. Who did Jesus claim to be? Son of the father. And so, you know, the, I, I love Mel Gibson's passion on the whole. It gets so many things right. Um, this is one thing that I didn't appreciate and is common to some of the, um, movies about Jesus, where Barabbas is pictured as kind of like this slobbering, psychopathic axe murderer or something. No, that wasn't it at all. Barabbas was was the opposite of Jesus, was a messianic figure that was exactly what the people wanted. Let's go out and take the heads off the Roman oppressors. Let's establish the kingdom of of David um, by the blood of our enemies. (laughs) Think of Jesus. Let's establish the kingdom of David by the shedding of my own blood. And you see the two in opposition with one another. The crowd chooses which Messiah, which messianic figure they want. They choose Barabbas rather than the true son of the father. And so then he is crucified um, with the insurrectionists, with the rebels. And that is an all-important point, too, because as they are insurrectionists and, rebel- and rebels, um, they are cursing God, reviling him right along with everyone else, cursing and reviling Christ who's crucified in their midst. Now, in this we see, and the, the church fathers saw this right off the bat, it's been a tradition for 2,000 years, but you see two types that there really are only two types of human beings in the world. We are all born into the world uh, as rebels, rebelling against God, reviling him, despising him, cursing him, and um, condemned, justly condemned to die. That line, "Are are we not under the sentence of death? Well, are we not all under the sentence of death? And so there's this typology of these two men. Now, over the course of the crucifixion, apparently fairly early on, one of them is converted. Lining up the words that Jesus says, remember if we take all the the data from the four Gospels, we come to see he speaks seven words from the cross. The thief is converted between the first and the second words. The first words, after they've crucified Jesus and lifted him up, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, this coupled with our Lord's conduct is enough at some point in time 
for this man to become converted, such that then he, as a, as a condemned rebel, turns to Christ and says, the only thing any of us can say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And of course then, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And again, as we looked at this last week, today, not after a million years in purgatory, not, not well, sorry, your soul's going to go to sleep, and then when I return, I'll awaken you, and it'll feel like today, <laughs> but, you know, today, but not today. No, Jesus doesn't say that. We have purgatory out, we have soul sleep out, we have any idea of like losing consciousness for any prolonged period of time and then coming to, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, so three ingredients. Three ingredients. Today, with me, paradise. And this really, in a sense, is all the data we have. Everything else is going to be a comment on this. Um, but when we die, our bodies go into the earth, you can expect to see the Lord Jesus. No doubt about it. And that immediately, it's what we call the particular judgment. So when you die, you are, you, you have the particular judgment. Um, that is to say, you're either, you're either told, come with me into paradise, <laughs> or depart into prison. That's the language of 1 Peter 3. So, paradise and prison. That's where the souls of the departed go. Both of these are kind of waiting rooms. When Christ returns for judgment, all the dead are raised in their bodies. The judgment takes place. You know, contrary to my belief as a, as a little kid growing up, I thought, well, the judgment, whoo, that's going to be filled with suspense and surprise. Not for like 99% of the population. <laughs> you already know where you were and where you're going. Uh, you, you also are, you know, this is the time, this is the time too to panic. Was it, was it the sheep that were on his right or on his left? I can't remember. No. <laughs> no, you already know. You already know. The vast majority of humanity, we've already been with Jesus in paradise. And so when we're raised in our bodies, we know whose we are. We know where we're going. There's no surprises. And that's true for the vast majority of the folks who reject him. Um, the only surprises might be amongst the living who face that judgment. Okay, so with me in paradise. Um, if we, you know, again, if we are up against this extreme skepticism, then we could, uh, we could press this point as far as we need to, that there is continuity between you now and you then. How so? With me. You know who Jesus is now. You know who Jesus is then. There is a continuity of subject. Okay, why do I say this? Because for some reason here in the West, we've gotten this idea that as soon as you die, you get a lobotomy. You don't remember who you are, who anyone else is. Okay, all of this is rendered nonsensical by the fact that you know who Jesus is. If you know who Jesus is, you know who also belong to Jesus. There's continuity. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, is great on this point. Um, that, uh, that, of course, there's continuity. There's a recognition of those people we knew 
in this life. The Great Divorce is, uh, is a really interesting read on all of this. And contrary to our very Gnostic ideas of heaven being less real, you know, being, being kind of filled with uh, clouds and hazy, and I don't know who I am, I don't know who anyone else is, what is now? This is completely the opposite of how heaven is. Um, C.S. Lewis puts this, of course, in a very picturesque way. Remember when uh, the souls are visiting, these are the, the souls who have rejected Christ and are condemned. Remember when they're visiting heaven and they're just on the outskirts and they get out and they step on the grass. Do you remember what the grass feels like? Painful. Painful to them. Sharp and prickly. Why? Too real. It is they who have faded and become ghostly. The way that we in the West have defined heaven is really actually closer to hell. Hell is more like getting a lobotomy. Hell is more like, who am I? Where am I? Who is everyone? I don't know myself. I don't know anyone else. That's closer to hell. Why? That would be roughly synonymous with darkness. Unknowing. Put yourself in an absolutely dark room. What do you know? Not a darn thing. Put yourself in an absolutely dark room for any period of time and what happens? Madness. Ah, short order of time. Madness. So this idea of not knowing and losing knowledge and losing certainty and losing reality, that's descriptive of hell. Heaven, as C.S. Lewis so beautifully puts it, is so concrete and so real that only those who are real, only those who are themselves, only those who are in the light, only those who see, only those who have life can even enjoy it or experience it. So I think this is a beautiful articulation of the point um, that, that there, is, there is perfect continuity. In fact, those things we know, we know more objectively than ever before, including ourselves and others. Our, the light brightens. The darkness flees away. We see more. We know more. Everything is much clearer. All right? How else could it be if we are with me? And who is me? The one who is the darkness of the world or the one who is the light of the world? Correct. So he is the light that enlightens everything. So we're with him. All right, and then in paradise, we talked about paradise. The etymology of this word is garden. And it takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's probably, uh, again, the most helpful way of thinking of um, heaven as gateway to the new heavens and the new earth. And that is to think of it concretely as Eden again, as what would happen if sin and death were reversed, if the devil's head was crushed and we could perceive it. Paradise again. Um, the garden again. And so here we have that um, laden in these words of Jesus, with me in paradise. Okay, well again, we covered some of this ground last week, so I don't want to um, belabor the point anymore, but I do want to pause and see if you have any questions or any thoughts on Jesus' words to uh, the insurrectionist, the rebel, and uh, what they mean for us. One thought that, that did occur to me, just as you were talking about this now, that it was not so much about Jesus' words to the insurrectionists, but the insurrectionists' words to Jesus. Uh, remember me in your kingdom. Mm -hmm. Right now, he didn't say, remember me in your father's kingdom. 
right? He said, remember me in your kingdom. By saying that, he was saying, you're the king of heaven, right? So he was declaring Jesus in that sentence to be God, mm, Yeah. right? That's how far his conversion had come, mm-hmm. right? He, he didn't have any kind of doubts about who Jesus was. He had said, he said, Jesus, you're God, yeah. you're the king of heaven, remember me there. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually a very powerful statement. And then Jesus didn't say, oh, you, actually, you meant my dad's heaven. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm not actually the king, right. I'm just prince. Right. Right? He a- answered like the king. Absolutely. You that's, know, so he was declaring point. himself to be God in that's that sentence. Point. Yeah, and, ab- and, and absolutely. I mean, and I think your point's very, very well taken. Um, as is this, I mean, there's no, there's no uncertainty in his mind that he's going to die and that this Jesus and his kingdom transcends death, conquers death. Yeah. So thank you for that. Not only do you have the divinity in here, but you got those kind of other tangents as well. Yeah. Thank you. Did I see another hand? Yeah, please. You may have already touched on this before. I wasn't here last week and I'm a new member here, uh, but... Is this Je- a confession? No, no Je- just, Je- yeah, Jesus. Just well, just to, just if the question's been asked before, so oh, just yeah. bear with me. But I, I haven't heard an answer to this, so I'd like to know. Um, when Jesus told the thief on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise, how can we confess in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell? How can Jesus both be in hell and paradise at the same time? I know other Christian denominations will just take that line out of the Apostles' Creed. But, you know, First Peter talks about Jesus going, appear, appearing to go into hell, and our confessions teach very clearly that Christ did, in fact, ascend into hell. So how, how do we reconcile this apparent discrepancy, which we know it's not, but that's my question. Oh, yeah. I'm smiling because it's a wild question. It's great. It's, it's, I mean, it's so much fun. We could spend weeks going on this. And, um, and it, it kind of, this is one of the rabbit holes that you can fall into in theology, and just keep following and just keep going and it goes deeper and deeper and you have different church fathers having vastly different takes on the superstructure of what this means christ's descent into hell okay this is one of the many places i am just genuinely so thankful to be a lutheran okay because the lutheran confessions um have an have an article on the descent into hell Okay. Is, you all heard that? Just want to make sure I wasn't like ready to retire. Okay. <laughs> Soon enough. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Lutheran Confessions have this beautiful article on the descent into hell. And it's like this long. It's tiny. Because why? They recognize that in the tradition of the church, there are all these different understandings and implications of those understandings and they're not going to pin anyone's conscience down to something like you have to believe this this is an article of the faith taught in the word of god they're not going to bind anyone's conscience to this teaching that has been so widely debated in the history of the church so they the lutherans in their wisdom scale all the way back and simply say this we know that he descended into heaven in his body, not to, or descended into hell, sorry, descended into hell in his body, not to suffer, but triumphantly to proclaim his victory over Satan. That's it. 
That's the, that's sort of the, the confessional standard. And I love it. It's beautiful. I, anyone in this room, I think, can confess this no problem because this is the teaching of 1 Peter 3 and this is the teaching of the Creed and this in and of itself really is uncontroversial amongst all Christians. So then if you go much past that, you start getting into controversy. Okay. So turn with me to, uh, first, is there anything else do we think on this? Any other questions or, cause we're going to ch- change pages here. Anything else on Luke 20? Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me table the next part and can we put the microphone here, please? I was just going to add, are you, um, I don't know if you're going there, but uh, to answer the other question, I'd like to add this thought too. Uh, Christ in his bodily nature is omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we can confess that he is bodily present on all the altars of the world at the same time. Yeah. You know, whereas Wingley said that he can't be because his body ascended into heaven, that's where his body is. It can't be on our altar. Mm-hmm. And so Luther said, no, just as his body could pass through the door on Easter night, his body has the traits, the nature, the characteristics, uh, the attributes of the divine nature as well. Right. Yes. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, let me try to tie that in as best I can with kind of maybe a, uh, maybe a more narrow, concrete, um, chronological treatment, as it were. Um, anything else particular to this? And then we're going we're gonna to go into detail on, on your question and give you an answer, because I haven't done that yet, really. Okay, let's, let's turn just very quickly to 1 Peter 3. Now, this text is um, a very challenging text overall. And it's not my intention to get into it all that much. Um, but I do, I do want to show you that one, one of the places that particularly um, we as Lutherans, but you know, the tradition goes earlier than that as well, have, have grasped hold of um, the descent into hell. Now, there are many other places where the scriptures speak, um, or, you know, this is, this is kind of the argument. Are they speaking about the descent into hell or not? Okay. That's part of the debate. And church fathers, you know, even disagreeing over like what the seed is, what the seat of this doctrine is. But here in 1 Peter 3, at least from a Lutheran standpoint, um, fairly, fairly, uh, straightforward. Okay, if you look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. All right, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins. That would be Good Friday, right? That would be the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. Namely, Christ, the sinless, righteous Son of God for us, for us poor miserable sinners, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous in place of the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Okay? Being put to death in the flesh, what would that be? That would be Good Friday, but made alive in the spirit. Now, this is where the difficulty arises. The ESV has small s spirit. What on earth does that mean? So a more traditional reading has a capital S spirit here. In the spirit could possibly even be read as by the spirit. 
what we have is Christ put to death and then Christ made alive. Okay? If it's, if it's capital S spirit there, which I would argue is the best reading, and again, I, I want to try to avoid controversy on all of this simply because I don't think it's going to be a good use of our time. We'll go down the rabbit hole, whether we intended to or not. Um, but then it is in which, that is, in this Holy Spirit, by his power, alive, not dead, but alive, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in Fulake, prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience awaited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Can you believe how fast this theology moves? <laughs> That's part of the difficulty, you know. Part of the difficulty is understanding Peter's rhetoric and what he's doing here. And his ultimate point seems to be pushing towards a baptismal point. And so it causes him to move very quickly very quickly. But if we slow down, we have a clear statement that, this is verse 19, that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this um, this is where, I mean, this certainly resonates, let's at least put it that way, with the creed that he went ad infernum. You can already see the flexibility, the fluidity in the language, fulake, ad infernum, to hell. All right. Um, So then, this is probably the crux of why we assert that he is risen in his body to descend into hell to proclaim his victory. Now, another point of why this makes sense, and and by the way, the Lutheran confessions, at least as, as best as I can tell, seem to affirm this. Um, that he uh, descends in his body. If he doesn't descend in his body, what does he proclaim? You got me. I'm, I'm dead. I'm here in, in small as spirit only. But if he is risen in his body, what does he proclaim? I've conquered you. I've conquered sin. In that sense, he truly harrows hell because I've conquered your I've conquered sin. I've conquered death. You have no more dominion. There is no reason why anyone on the face of the earth would ever need to enter these gates again. At minimum, you have that kind of thing going on. Okay, so let's wed this together in kind of a simplistic chronological sort of way. Now, I, I really appreciate... Um, I hesitate to say your name because I don't want to incriminate you that you were here and, you know, big government will come knocking on your door. Uh, <laughs> I want to give credit where credit's due and yet not have you sent to the gulags. I probably just lost several social credit points for saying that. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the point is well taken that there is there is some ability to play with the incarnation profoundly understood as the divinity taking up the humanity, Athanasian Creed style. And thus that humanity being understood in a much more, a much more complex way than we typically understand, like, like, here's the person of Jesus. Here's his body. That's it. That's the humanity. Seeing Jesus like that is, is a kind of distortion. Seeing his humanity limited in that sense is a kind of 
distortion. Um, one of the three genera of our Christology even mitigates against this. this the second genera, the genus or genus myostaticum. Okay? The communication of the divine attributes, the majesty, into the human nature allows for the human nature to do things that a normal human nature couldn't do. The implication of that is wherever you have Jesus, you have his true divine nature and his true human nature in one person. You don't ever want to say that Jesus is with us in a way that he's no longer human. Human Jesus is up in heaven. Spiritual Jesus is down here with me in my heart. Congratulations, you're a Nestorian. <laughs> You've got two Jesuses. Okay, so so we can address this this um, this question in sort of this complex Christological way, understanding that. Hey, what the limiting variable here isn't the scriptures or the proclamation of the creed. It's our minds being able to conceive of this reality, wherein it would be quite possible for Jesus in the fullness of humanity to be in paradise with the thief and in hell proclaiming his victory and on earth amongst all his saints as well. And maybe that's the safest answer. Okay. Now, let me try, let me hazard one more answer here, a little bit more concrete for those of you that don't think abstractly, that's fine. Um, this is, um, this is, uh, Francis Pieper and his Christian dogmatics, kind of the dogmatic standard of the 20th century for, uh, Lutherans. This is his answer to this question. He answers in a very concrete way. Okay, if you line this up chronologically, um, the creed is a little misleading, not, just not intentionally so. So that what happens on Good Friday? Jesus' body goes into the earth. Jesus still as true God and true man ascends into heaven. You can still be true man without a body. Isn't that an interesting thing? Well, of course. What are we going to be when we die and go up into heaven? We're going to be still truly human, even though we're separated from our body. So Jesus as true God and true man ascends into heaven. His body obviously is buried in the unused tomb. That's Friday. That's today you will be with me in paradise. Saturday, which is the Sabbath day, the day of rest, is a day of rest for our Lord. His body asleep in the tomb and himself, true God and true man, in heaven, in paradise. Um, all right, that's Saturday. Sunday morning, he is in his body, made alive in his body, if we take Peter, made alive by the Spirit in his body, at which point in time, and again, this is Pieper's argument, this is kind of the dogmatic argument, at which point in time, if you will, he descends into hell, risen in his body in order to triumph, okay? Then, what does the creed confess? He is raised on the third day. That is to say, there's a difference between quickened and raised. That's the distinction Pieper and the, and the uh, Orthodox Lutheran theologians draw. There's a difference between being quickened in your body and then showing yourself publicly to be raised from the dead. That's what the creed's after. That's kind of 
what's going on here. So he's quickened, made alive in his body by the Spirit, descends into hell, proclaims, then is resurrected, comes forth from the tomb and shows himself to Mary and the disciples, etc. Make sense? Okay, so that's maybe more of a easier to wrap your mind around, maybe, possibly, answer. Okay, hopefully that helps, Gaston. Good question. I think it only took me most of class to answer. Yes, please. I, I was curious about that word quickened. Mm-hmm. So I, I would just did, and you can tell me to shut up, but I just uh, looked it up on uh, uh, studylight.org and they're in a linear Bible. That fast? That's incredible. And, uh, and uh, the word that's used there is the same. It means to beget. Mm. Right? It's zoopeo or something like some Greek word. But, you know, it showed the, the, you know, dictionary definition. The first thing was to bring to life or to beget. Yeah, made alive. And so it's like, so he was, he was begotten by the spirit. I mean, I'm not opposed to it because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. His resurrection is a birth. And it's our teach standard teaching is that he's the, begotten son of god mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah. so I, yeah, I don't know it's kind of an interesting thought that he was that this is just another aspect of his being begotten is that he went down in his body into into the underworld yeah i don't know anyway, uh, no it's very i don't know how much I, you can read I mean, in the word like i said you tell me to shut up if you no want. no i think it's just it's an interesting idea. It's just too interesting because my mind is sitting here as the begotten one. There's, there's actually many ways in which he's begotten. And that's kind of what, that's kind of where my mind is going. Obviously he's begotten before eternity. He's begotten in the sense that the word, the transfiguration. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. This is my only begotten son. Listen to him. Yeah, there's just too many begot. He is he is the begotten one. There's a sense in which the word is begotten, and thus all things are made through him. Um, he is begotten in a again. All of these are nuanced senses in which he's begotten. He's begotten of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Um, he is the one who's begotten in our hearts. Isaiah loves that text from or Isaiah Luther loves that text from Isaiah. I'm sure, Isaiah is a fan of Luther too, but. Uh, but no, Luther loves the Isaiah text, unto us a child is born. In what sense could that possibly be? Luther takes that to be that Christ is begotten inside of us through the preaching of the word. Um, he draws this analogy that is, as Mary, uh, as Christ is conceived within Mary by the word of the angel, so as that word comes to us, Christ is begotten within us, and our hearts become the, his cradle. He's begotten from the dead and begets us from the dead. So there's a sense in which his begottenness perpetuates. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, and the, the father as begetter, the one who begets, that perpetuates also. It's just who he is, and so you see that everywhere. Please. What's the purpose of Christ going into hell and preaching, proclaiming? I mean, it's not like they had an opportunity to change their mind, Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so that's this is actually um, what some of the church fathers debate. Um, the the Lutheran confessions close the door on that, simply on the basis of very clear words of Scripture, Old Testament and New, that seem to indicate there's no second chance. You know, 
Um, and then what are you going to do? I mean, here's Christ raised from the dead. Who's going to be like, now nah, I'll stay here. So it's kind of like the more you think about these things, too, they're a little ridiculous, you know? Yeah, no, it's fine. Why, so why go there? What, what did it accomplish? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Okay, so I don't want to take us down the rabbit hole of possibilities and, and different answers that church fathers have given throughout the centuries. The very simple answer is that this is um, Christ's victory over the devil. And basically over sin, death, and the devil. Okay, so he fills all in all. If you think, you know, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but if you kind of think of the cosmos as um, paradise, earth, and fulake, prison, his victory extends from paradise to prison. It's proclaimed everywhere. It's proclaimed to all. And it, and it is a victorious proclamation. I have now crushed the serpent's head. Sin is undone. Death is undone. Um, humanity has been, has been re-won. They're mine. Purchased with my blood. That's the kind of, that's the idea. Um, so otherwise you'd be like, well, he proclaimed his victory in paradise. He proclaimed his victory on earth, but hell didn't get the memo. And this kind of teaching in, insists that hell did get the memo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of the, the Lutheran answer there. Okay, well, I had no idea we were going to be talking about this today, but um, <laughs> seems to be of interest. So there's more to the creed than meets the eye, obviously, and more to these kinds of questions. And, tr and truth be told, a lot of this is shrouded in mystery. I mean, we have what the scriptures tell us. We have the, the way that the church has thought about this. Um, but there are many questions that we simply don't have answers to or don't have a, probably a thorough, thoroughly accurate understanding. Are we, good to, are we good to move on? We've got a couple more minutes. Should we change pace? Something lighter. How about that? All right. How about we go to Acts, Luke part two, and we'll get, we'll get one more little piece of data here. And I'm not going to be able to do justice to it. So if I leave something out that you like, please raise your hand and add to it. Um, but if we go to Acts chapter, I think it's seven. Yeah, Acts seven. And let's pick up at... Uh, at verse 54, just to give ourselves a little context here. Okay, Acts 7, 54. Now, what has been happening is Stephen, Stephanos, do you know, does anybody know what that is? Crown. Crown. Can you believe it? It's almost, you wonder if his name was George, and tradition just put this, because it's so perfect. No, I, I'm joking. I think you see God's handiwork here, that the very first of the martyrs is actually named Crown, and this becomes so synonymous with martyrdom and receiving the crown. It's just, you can see the Holy Spirit. It's almost unbelievable. But here's the first of the Christian martyrs, the first who is conformed into the image of Christ in the sense of laying down his life for what is true. Verse 54, all right, so Stephen's been preaching. Now, when they heard these things, namely when they heard his sermon, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. 
But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Very dramatic moment because, of course, this is the Apostle Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, which, by the way, what does this mean, laid their garments at the feet of Saul? A different takes on this. If nothing else, I mean, kind of the bare minimum read is that he was complicit. But, of course, what we know of St. Paul is he was running around doing this. The opposite sort of extreme is that this was done under his authority. And so they're doing Paul's bidding and laying their clothes at his feet like, hey, this is what you want us to do. You know, when Paul says he's the chief of sinners, it's no joke. That's like that's not pious hyperbole. That's how he feels. And his rhetoric is no joke either, that if Christ could have mercy on even him, then Christ could have mercy on anyone. So 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now next line, in case you doubted, and Saul approved of his execution. Okay, that tangent aside, what do we see? He sees into heaven. He sees the Father, that is the glory of God, and he sees the Son. Okay, they cast him outside of the city, which is just as Jesus was crucified outside of the city. He is stoned rather than crucified. And as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Interesting here, too, how we can see how he's conformed into the image of Christ. The final words of Jesus are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here he commits, uh, Stephen commits his uh, spirit into the hands of the Lord Jesus. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which, of course, is exactly what Jesus himself said. It's remarkable. The first words of Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the last word of Stephen. And the last word of Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit, is the first word of Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Okay, and when he said this, he fell asleep. So beautiful because death is now for the Christian sleep. The body is sleeping in the earth ready to be awoken on the last day in the resurrection. And the soul is sleeping, that is, at rest with Jesus. But let's not think of that as some kind of unconsciousness or some kind of dreamlike state. Today you will be with me in paradise. And here he cries out um, specifically that the Lord 
would not hold this sin against them, but that the Lord would receive his spirit. He already sees the Lord. He already knows where he's going. All right. So we have more data here. Namely, that when a Christian dies, he immediately goes to be with the Lord. All right, let's see if you have any thoughts on that one. A little bit of a lighter idea, at least in terms of the complexity of understanding it. Straightforward, I mean. Even though you can see a certain richness and profundity in this account of the first martyrdom, of course, implications with St. Paul. All right. Uh, I did see a hand. If you want to make a comment, that's great. Makes me want to make reference to Handel and his writing, the Hallelujah Chorus. It's just, it's, the drama of this is remarkable. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and this, I think this can be our prayer too. We can adopt the same language as Christ on the cross, the same language of Stephen, the first martyr. We can adopt this when we face death ourselves, when we feel as though death is near. Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive me. Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So we're also being taught a language here, a prayer language, as it were, for death. And that is how, how it is that we can face death without fear, commending ourselves into the hands of the one who has conquered death, not only himself, but also for us. All right, I see that we are at quarter after. We better break off there next week um, to the writings of the same Paul we just saw standing by while Stephen was martyred. And we're going to have a number of those um, kind of climaxing in Revelation, which gives us maybe the most vivid and picturesque account of what the intermediate state is. The Lord be with you.